Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 13, Episode 5. Today, I'm very happy to be um, talking to podcaster Vanessa Baca. Vanessa is a cook, food blogger, podcaster, freelance writer, and public relations professional. Her food blog, Food and Books, reviews various works of literature and recreates the food references in these books. Her podcast, Cooking the Books, showcases literary cuisine with a variety of guests. I know her mainly from her podcast, Fear Feasts, which she does with previous guest, Alessandra Pino. I'm a huge fan of that podcast, and I listen to every episode the day it comes out because I can't wait for it to come out. Uh, it comes out bi-weekly, and I'm always waiting for each episode with bated breath. I really love um, the conversations that Vanessa and Alessandra have about um, food in books and uh, how they usually will uh, compare the written uh the written versions of the uh, books, and then also compare that to what's on the films as well. So that is very well done. Without further ado, I'll take you to my conversation with the wonderful Vanessa Baca. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's wonderful to hear your voice. I've been such Thank a fan you. of yours. Thank you so much. We appreciate your support. I love the podcast so much. I look forward Thank to it you. every every other week. I, I wait for it and wait for it. And it's something that gives me a very large amount of pleasure. I think it's my absolute favorite podcast. Oh my gosh, that guy, that's the best compliment I've gotten. Thank you so much for saying that. It's a labor of love for Ellie and I, that's for sure. We love it so much. I almost actually even feel like it's made just for me. Because I mean, the, the topics you guys cover, yeah. some of my favorite films, and I'm just like, do they somehow get intel and find things that only I, I like? Know. Now you know I, we have a we have a secret spy network. Yeah, is my wife sending you information through email right? and everything? <laughs> well, no, that really that makes me so happy to hear. Uh, we we work very hard on it, and it's uh, like I said, it's it's something that I think is is near and dear to both of our hearts. So I'm happy to know that our uh, our efforts are are that other people appreciate our efforts. We must have a huge fan base. I mean, I can't be the only one. We're building fan base. I I don't know how huge it is, but we um we actually just hit 500 uh listens to the podcast. So I thought that was pretty good in in less than a year. Uh, I'm pretty proud of of what we've accomplished. So I think it's just a matter of you know it's it's hard because there are so many podcasts out there. Yes. And I do, I do feel that ours are unique. Ours is unique because we take two things that I don't think many people would consider have a connection. But to me, I think food and horror are are two universal connectors because everybody has to eat to live and everybody's afraid of something whatever that might be so it, to me those are it's a logical connection but maybe not for everybody else well i think you know there, there are a lot of other horror podcasts but some of them are mm -hmm. kind of done by meatheads i'm not trying to be mean but like you know some of them are kind of just these dudes dude bros mm -hmm. and i'm like i'm not a dude bro kind of guy i don't want to hear the dude bros you know yeah yeah i like and something horror, a little bit more and horror is i think such a subjective thing yeah. Anyway, much like food, like what, what somebody thinks is scary, maybe somebody else doesn't think is scary. Like for me, 
I don't really find like gross horror. I don't think it's scary at all. I think it's kind of um, kind of silly in some ways. Some of it can be well done, but I think like the so franchises like Saw, for example, I, I never was into it because to me it isn't scary. Uh, scary to yeah. me is, is when you're genuinely terrified and when you know you're terrified by something that you don't necessarily see on screen. That to me is well done horror. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's almost like uh, you're just basically creating PTSD for yourself. And that's not fun. I don't enjoy Yeah. that. No, nor I. There's enough things in life to, in real life, to give you PTSD. You don't need to, you don't need, I don't personally need to find it in my films. Well, if you compare it to the Dr. Fibes films, which is kind of the same premise in a way, Mm -hmm. the Dr. Fibes films were fun. It was, it was stylish. And the people, when they die, was never realistic. It was always kind of corny. very Yeah. much like a British panto kind of thing, Yeah, you yeah. know, you know wink, wink, Mm-hmm. theater, Yeah, I totally blood, know what you mean. all that stuff where, you know, the revenge killings, but it was always kind of done masterfully, whereas this is just a gross out thing, you know, I just want to Mm see -hmm. how much you can possibly take. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel the same. I mean, that being said, I mean, there is one movie that I that does have quite a lot of gore in it, but I love it. Um, and I don't even think it is horror, but to me, it's as much satire as it is anything else. So I watch it and I think it's just really kind of funny. It's an American Psycho. And I love the Yes. book by Brett Easton Ellis. And I love the movie with um, I forget the actor's name. Uh, but yes, it's uh, Christian Christian Bale, yeah. Christian Bale, thank you, who's been in some other fantastic horror films. But to me, that one is is funny in its gore precisely because it is meant to be satirical and it's meant to kind of point out the flaws in, in our society at that time. You know, this sort of concept of, um, you know, white toxic manhood in, in corporate America. And it, it's really funny. I think it's, it's really hilarious. And so people kind of think I'm weird when I tell them I think that's a hilarious film, even though it's gross and it is horror. But, you know, what can I say? Horror is subjective. Well, I think when it came out, people were saying that there, it was meant to be a satire and people were not picking that up at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. And uh, same thing with the book. The book was was demonized and 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 villainized for many, many years. And it's, it's such a well-written book. I don't get it. But again, subjective, like we were saying. We, we have a problem in this country and maybe others, but we don't really get satire. Um, No, sadly. yeah. And I see that a lot as a librarian. People are like, this book offended me. And it's like, well, It was meant to be offensive, so job well Mm -hmm. It was done. meant to be, it's meant to point out things that need to be <laughs> critically examined in our yeah. society. That's the point of satire. Now, I have to point out for the listeners right now, um, your kitchen is gorgeous. Talk to me Thank about this you. kitchen. I love it. It's beautiful and red, Thank you. so much red. Thank you. I love red. You would think it would be black with goth stuff everywhere, but no. No, I, no I'm not. I mean, I understand that. I, I, Mm-hmm. you would think that with me as well, but I tend to. not always go that because it's i don't know it's you can't do that all the time Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the color red to me. It's very uplifting. So I, 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 yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I had a good time painting it and getting it, getting it all, all to my style. well i've had all black and you you if your vision starts failing as you get older it's not a fun thing because you can't find anything it's all black No, right. That's one of the drawbacks of being a goth that nobody ever tells you about. yeah like where where's my <laughs> where's my shirt i had it on right. oh it's You're like feeling around. Uh-huh. Exactly. You, you need Oh, a that's guide funny. dog, you know. Hilarious. Vanessa, so tell me about where are you from? Talk to me about your childhood. Did you have a love of Buddhas in your childhood? Um, talk to me about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I was born here in New Mexico in the southwest of the United States. I still live here in Albuquerque. I was raised primarily by my maternal grandmother, who was a wonderful cook. Um, and so I, I very early memories of her making uh, fresh tortillas, which is really kind of a lost art within our culture. She was a wonderful cook, a phenomenal cook, but she was one of those people who were very impatient as well. So I didn't actually learn to cook from her because she would, I would, I would want to learn from her. And I, I wouldn't get it right on the first try. And she would just say, oh, well, never mind, let me do it. And she would do it. And <laughs> so, so sadly, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up with that knowledge of cooking, but I, I, you know, I'm a foodie, I love food. I started getting into cooking probably in my late 20s, early 30s, right around the time that the Food Network was coming out. And um, a big, huge influence on, on me has been Nigella Lawson. The British. Oh, yeah. I remember watching her, her very first cooking show. And I thought she was just so beautiful and, and amazing. But yes, you know, they showed her in her in her home with her kids and her house was lovely, but it wasn't necessarily like this super fancy house. It was messy sometimes. And she was kind of just she cooked in kind of the way like you could tell she had a lot of enjoyment in it. You know, she would taste. Yeah. She went along and she was obviously also very literary, which I thought was so wonderful. You know, she would make these literary allusions and comparisons to different books she had read or whatever. And I just thought that was so amazing. It's not something that I had really ever put together in my head, but I've loved, I've read since an early age. I love to read um, and, you know, I got very into cooking. So that was sort of uh, maybe in a way like a germ of how my, um, my blog and, and subsequent podcasts have come into being. I love her writing as well mm -hmm. as her TV shows yes. because she's a very good writer and she has a definite sense of prose in her writing, mm -hmm. which I love. I mean, I love her talking about anything, but when she writes, it's very beautiful um, mm -hmm. to read her work. I, I really is. can't talk about her, her writing enough because I recommend her books a lot in the library. Mm -hmm. And I always say you need to really read her, her work because it, mm -hmm. It, it's worth reading. Um, so did you have any relatives that kind of, you mentioned your grandmother mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, what were some of the foods that you um, had your family cooking growing up? Well, like I had mentioned, my grandmother was, uh, she made tortillas. Um, she was very good at it. Like I said, it's becoming kind of a lost art within our culture. My dad yeah. loved to cook. He uh, made eggplant parmigiana. I always remember that was a thing he loved and he made it quite a bit. Um, he passed away when I was 15, so I I'm think sorry. he would have, he would have, thank you. I think he would have continued to be a big influence in my life uh, cooking wise. He certainly was a huge influence literary wise because he would carry books with him all over. And that's how I would discover books. I um, That's how I discovered Stephen King, you know, talking about a love of horror. My dad had a copy of the book, The Shining in his car. I think it was about nine or 10. And of course I took it and read it and bugged him for a week with questions about it. Um, yeah, so my, um, mostly my maternal grandmother, my mother was a very good cook as well. We weren't quite as close, but she was a very good cook as well, extremely good cook. But again, another very impatient person. So I didn't get a yeah. chance to learn too much from from either her or my grandmother. So, you know, unfortunately the, the cooking of our New Mexico culture is not, it's not something that's instinctive to me, which I feel kind of sad about, but it's, I'm learning it as I get older. But I, I sort of had to develop my own my own taste palette, uh, you know, and then I've done that as an adult. And I think I'm I think I, I feel like I'm a very good cook, but it's not it's not the traditional cooking that I grew up with. Like pinto beans was a real big thing. You know, we weren't very wealthy, so we had to eat kind of basic things, you know, beans and potatoes and tortillas and 
um, you know, I still to this day can't make an omelet because my grandmother would lose patience with me because I could never master the, the omelet flip. <laughs> so to this day, something that's as basic as an omelet, I can't, I still can't really make it. It's always runny in the middle. So I just cheat and I make a frittata instead. And that always comes out perfect. And I just lie and I'm like, oh yeah, it's my, it's my type of an omelet. It's an Italian omelet. Yeah. And people are like, oh, look at you. You're a gourmet. I'm like, mm -hmm, I'm such a gourmet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it's that. All slate, it's all slate of hand. Trust me. <laughs> There's been a lot of talk recently about um, the food in New Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. Linda Rodstadt wrote a book um, that came out this year, Feels Like Home, A Song of the Sonoran Borderlands. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you get a chance to read that at all? It's a wonderful book. No, no, I haven't. Um, I have not. I, I've heard of it, but I have not. I have not read it. Um, I believe Linda Ronstadt is her family was originally from Arizona, and the, the food there is a, somewhat different. It's like kind of the difference between Texas. Texan New Mex Mex food and New Mexico food. Yeah. I mean, they're similar in some ways, but there's certain things that are very specific to the food in, in the New Mexico culture that you don't really see anyplace else. Yeah, I mean, I've been in Mexico mm -hmm. and it's a different region. It, it's it, mm -hmm. there's nothing like it in the United States. There's yeah. it's very singular. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about um, your love of horror. When did it start with you? You mentioned your father having mm -hmm. uh, Stephen King's The Shining. Did it begin there? Or did you get to watch other films growing up? Um, it was mainly from reading. I've, I was I, I was never a huge film fan. I do like I do like a lot of horror in films, but I, I tend to be much more book focused. I think probably um, see having read Stephen King from just a very young age, and I, I think King for for people of my age in particular, you know, when you, you kind of he sort of was the seminal writer for kids like me who who were yeah. into more of the dark the darker things in life. Um, yeah, I mean, it's The Shining, Salem's Lot. That's a movie I remember seeing when I was quite young. And to this day, that scene where the, the vampire is floating outside the kid's room. That, yeah. And that's like, that scarred me for many, many years. But it, it scarred me in the sense that like, I had to have more. Um, I remember seeing The Exorcist when I was quite young, probably too young. Oh um, my God, that must have messed you up bad. Uh, well, we, we were Catholic, you know? And so I think that was sort of, the mentality behind it is, well, it's okay because it's about priests saving a little girl. And, but yeah, I remember that movie was terrifying. And it, it's funny because I still, it's one of my favorite movies to this day. I don't find it necessarily terrifying anymore because I've seen it too many times, but I see, I find it fascinating just as a, as a, you know, kind of a psychological analysis, a police procedural. Um, it's a, it's a wonderfully done book and movie. Uh, I liked Dean Koontz when I was growing up. I liked R.L. Stein. So probably the, the what you would expect, like, you know, a, a kid growing up who, who had a taste for the dark and the goth. And then as I got older, um, I discovered Anne Rice, whom I adore. You know, may she rest. I don't know that I would classify her as horror. She, she takes horror no. tropes. But she's, to me, she's literature. You know, she's yeah. just an absolutely incredible writer. Uh, I don't think, you know, her vampires, they're not scary. They're very elegant and quite seductive. Her books to me are not horrifying, but they're, they're incredibly well-written and they're beautiful. And she does use a lot of horror tropes, ghosts, witches, vampires, haunted houses. And, and I did love all that. To me, she's more of a Gothic writer than, yeah. than maybe necessarily a horror writer. Yeah. Um, now, um, you know, probably more modern horror literature that I've gotten into. There's a writer, he's from uh, Great Britain. Uh, F G Cottam F letter F letter G and then Cottam C O T T A M. Oh, he's and I don't know why he's not more widely read. He has written so many. I have all of his books, and I think he's just an absolutely amazing writer. 
uh, I keep telling Allie, you know, my podcast partner, she lives in London. I'm like, you got to find him, go stalk him and get him on our show. Um, he's just a wonderful, wonderful writer. He wrote a book called The House of Lost Souls, which I believe was his first book. And I was hooked. And he's, to me, he's one of some of the younger horror writers now, like Grady Hendrix, who I think is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, Jason Arnop is another uh, great writer. To me, they are the writers who kind of have in now in the modern times have taken those traditional horror tropes and sort of have recreated them. You know, like Grady Hendrix. I think if you're a hor into horror, you know who Grady Hendrix is. Um, yeah. You know, Grady Hendrix has taken the the concept of vampires and kind of given it a fresh new twist and the concept of a haunted house and, you know, spooky dolls and things like that. I, I, I and he's, but he's funny too. He's got this very witty Southern sense of humor. And I think part of, part of why he particularly reminds me a lot of King is because he's also not afraid to get into the gruesome stuff. Like some of Stephen King stuff, it's, it's, you gotta have a strong stomach to read it. Um, and that's how Grady Hendrix is. He he can write some very gruesome scenes. So, you know, ironically, you know, with my love of food and horror, I always say don't read Grady Hendrix while you're eating. I've only read one of his books and it was recently, it was How to Sell a Haunted House. Yes. Have you read that? Oh yes. I've read all his books. Do you have any dolls? Uh, no, <laughs> not anymore. Are you going to buy any now? No, 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 no. We had dolls growing up and they're all at my sister's house now. I refuse to have them in my house. The dolls scare the hell out of me. Or puppets? Mm -mm. Nope. No puppets. See, I have, no dolls. I have, I have some and I wanted to get a ventriloquist dummy, but uh, I've been told, <laughs> no bueno, that's not happening. So I assume you probably love the movie Magic with Anthony Hopkins then. I do. I still <laughs> think it stands out. It's a good <laughs> film and he was magnificent in it. He really was. He really was. Yeah, that's a movie I saw many years ago with my dad, and I'm like to this day scarred. I'm like, I I can't. But it's it's something that Allie and I are going to cover in upcoming uh, seasons of, of Fear Feast. So uh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to oh, do nice. it again. Mm -hmm. I do love the fact that you, um, and we'll talk more about the podcast later as well. But I love the fact that you um, highlight a lot of horror films of the '70s, which is I think my favorite era for horror films because mm -hmm. I really love i think maybe from my childhood watching them but you do a great service to them i think that and i, th I think it's wonderful that somebody's doing that because you don't thank often you. hear that from people thank you so much well i, I really do think it was a, a very important time in filmmaking you know it was a it was just a few years after there were so many restrictions on what could be in actual films and I think that's reflective, but I also think you see a lot of reflections of what was going on in society at the time. You know, we were just barely coming out of the Vietnam War. There was yeah. a lot of political uh, unrest. There was a lot of racial tensions and it kind of is a lot like what we're dealing with now. And I think horror, if nothing else, provides a backdrop to show what's going on in, in culture and society at the time. And if it's done right, it can be kind of timeless. So let's talk about food and books. Mm -hmm. When did you when did you start that, and what kind of um, got you spurred to start the blog? I started the food and books blog in 2016. Um, it was really born out of just a, a. I started noticing in the trajectory of my reading that I was noticing the food references because I was really developing my cooking skills at the time, and I had noticed I was real interested in reading books like like Water for Chocolate is one of my absolute favorite books in the world. Uh, the book Chocolat, which the movie that was with Juliette Binoche and Johnny Depp was based on. And these books that really had these amazing descriptions of food. 
And, you know, food wasn't just kind of a, a byproduct. Food, in, in many senses, was the, was the primary focus of the book itself. And I thought that was really interesting. And then there was, of course, a favorite book of mine called um, Heartburn by the late Nora Ephron, which I yeah. had read after going through a, a breakup, one of many breakups with my ex. <laughs> and um, there's so much wonderful food in that book. And I started kind of thinking, well, this would be kind of cool to write about, you know, because I, I've always loved to write. I think right, reading, you know, if you love to read, you know, writing most often is sort of a byproduct of that. It was in my case anyway. And I had written a few articles here and there freelance throughout the years, but I thought, you know, I'm blogging. Blogging had been, I think it was a big, it really hit its, I think it's a big heyday in like the, the mid 2000, so like 2011, 12, 13, those years. And so I kind of came in a couple of years after that um and i just started thinking what do i want to write about you know without having being restricted by you know if i have to write to get paid you know i have to write about something specific and i thought well, i want to write about books i love books i always i enjoyed i love book reviews and i wanted to write about food so i thought well i'll just do a blog about the food in different books and it was also a good way for me to get more practice in my cooking because you know i would not necessarily cook something that was a dish in the in the book itself but i would take different references to food and combine them in different ways so that was a lot of fun and uh, i just had had a blast with it um i have a pretty good following i think i have about four thousand followers at this point you know it's it's just a great joy to me it's 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 a creative outlet that i very much needed and then um and i still do it i don't have as much time to devote to it but i do still blog quite a bit because i like the writing and uh the cooking the books podcast kind of directly came from the blog i wanted to, to right. start podcasting and kind of get into that i thought podcasting was really fascinating and it's such a great way to get more information it's like audiobooks you can listen while you're doing other things while you're doing housework while you're getting ready to go to work while you're while you're cooking so yeah. i thought well it would be interesting to kind of take my blog structure and see how it translated into a podcast and i had good time with it but i decided i needed like i wanted to start having guests because i kind of got sick of the sound of my own voice <laughs> and um so i started having different guests on i had on uh, one of my dear friends who's the director of the grief center here at the, of new mexico which provides grief counseling and resources for kids who have lost a, a family member uh generally through violence sadly and we talked about the movie and the book pet cemetery through the lens of grief and how that book, you know, really is 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 a treatise on on grief and what happens when you don't grieve properly. And but it's also full of food. And that's, you know, that kind of started me thinking about the concept of food and horror. And then I had met Allie, not met her, but I believe I started following her on Instagram about three years ago because, you know, the words gothic and cookbook. I thought, oh my God, my soul sister, I was, you know, my separated at birth twin. And so I started following her and I asked her if she wanted to be a guest on the Cooking the Books podcast. She came on and we had like the best conversations. We we did a, these two full length episodes, one on Dracula and one on Rebecca, which we both agree is probably one of our favorite books and movies of all time. And she spoke so eloquently just about the food, just her studies of food. She studied food in such an, 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 an unique and unusual way that's so different from anything that I've had any experience with that I was like, this, this woman, she's amazing. You know, I, gotta, I wanted to kind of just stay in contact with her and see if she wanted to collaborate further. She was finishing her doctorate at the time, and I had started thinking about maybe doing another type of podcast. So I asked her if she was interested in doing a, a podcast that analyzed Originally, we were going to do goth, 
And then I thought that's a little too specific. I thought, how about horror? Because, you know, as a reader, I notice that, you know, I notice I read very in depth and, and I've noticed that there are always mentions of food in horror, not in horror literature. And then you start watching movies and you start noticing sometimes that the, the, the food in the horror film is like a primary vehicle to move the, the plot forward. I'm thinking specifically of Drag Me to Hell. There's a scene where the main yeah. character goes to dinner with her fiance and her fiance's parents. And she's she's got a lot of hangups about food in general, you know, and mm -hmm. the movie explains that. But there's a scene where they're about to eat a piece of cake and the cake has an eye, then an eye opens in the middle of the cake. And it's like this pivotal scene in the movie and it's all about the food. So I started thinking, well, maybe we could just, maybe we could start doing a podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of food. And so we started for Fear Feasts and here we are. You, you speak um, when you talk about horror and literature mm -hmm. with great authority. And I, I've wondered, have you, are you an academic yourself? Are you, are you like an academic? No, I'm just, a, I'm just a nerd who reads a lot. Have you um, considered it? Cause I mean, I could see you teaching literature very easily. You. It'd probably be effortless for you. I was in graduate school several years ago. It was just a struggle. I was um, helping take care of my grandmother who was sick at the time. I was going through a breakup with in a relationship and I had to financially didn't have the means to, to go to graduate school full time. Right. It's and expensive. you really have to, you know, graduate yeah. school demands that you give it full time. And yeah. I just I, I didn't was not in that position to do it. I've thought about it. Maybe maybe I will. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Are you considering writing any books yourself? I know Alessandra's um, got a book that's uh, coming out. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about writing anything yourself? I've thought about writing a book. I don't really know what I would write about. Um, I've thought about a cookbook. And in fact, I had had the idea of writing a, a cookbook based on the work of Stephen King, but somebody beat me to it. Yeah. That's okay, though. It's a good book. Um, you know, I don't know. I, 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 maybe I would love to. I, Allie and I have talked about doing a cookbook based on uh, Fear Feast. I ah. think that's a great idea. You know? That would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. We just, I think she needs to get past the, the gothic cookbook stuff first and get that out there. And then I think we yeah. can focus on it. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. And I, I love to write. It's just, it, I think it's one of those things where I, I'm a little, it, the thought of writing a book, it can be a little bit intimidating. Yeah. There's so many of them out there. And then the publishing yeah. world has changed so much in the past five years. So, yeah. Yeah. I have a, another friend. Her name is Crystal King. She's a published author. She wrote uh, Feast of Sorrow and The Chef's Secret. And actually, she is somebody I collaborated with on um, her book, The Chef's Secret. She had, uh, in order, one of the marketing things that she had done to promote that book, she reached out to different uh, cooking professionals in the country and food bloggers, and I was one of them, and asked them to contribute a, a unique recipe. And that was actually put in a, a, a cookbook that was published as, as a companion piece to the book itself. So that was a real honor. And she's given me a lot of tips on, on the publishing world and all that. And I have another, there's another podcast that I'm part of. It's called Sharing the Flavor. And I collaborate with two really great guys, uh, Andy Gebbi and Giovanni Franceschini. Giovanni has actually published two books, The Pasta Papers and Dinner at Shakespeare's Globe. And Giovanni, um, he's an amazing writer. He's also an academic as well, but he writes about food in, you know, in conjunction with literature. And I, I think that's kind of how he and I connected as well. Um, he's given me some ideas about the publishing world as well. It's just a, it's not a, it's not something I know a whole lot about 
and I, I think I think it would be fascinating to 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 do a book. Like I said, it's just there's so much information out there. You really have to know what you're doing. Now, um, you mentioned you're in another. Po- How many podcasts are you involved with right now? Um, well, I don't really do cooking the books much anymore. It's a little bit on on hiatus. I I think about getting it going again sometime, but with two full time podcasts and a and a blog and a full time job, it's kind of not really high on my priority list. So there's Fear Feast which Ali and I, it's a labor of love. We love it. We look forward to it. And then I'm involved in sharing the flavor, which um, I just, I'm a contributing uh, host. I, I go on, it's primarily Andy Gebby's uh, baby. He, he He's a foodie and he and Giovanni have known each other for many years. And I met Andy through Giovanni. He introduced me as a fellow food writer and blogger. So we've been doing our that podcast for about a year. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus over the past couple months. But we're going to probably get started now in the in the next month again go, going forward. Initially, the, the podcast started out as just talking about different different specific foods specific to Italy because Giovanni um, his his family roots are Italian, and so that's an area that he's very knowledgeable about. And um, so he's you know kind of teaching Andy and I as we talk. So we talked about tiramisu, we talked about uh, al forno dishes. We've talked about cocktails. We talk about misperceptions about Italian food and Italian culture that a lot of like Americans and people from Britain tend to have. And then this second season that we're in now, we're doing kind of a road trip through Italy, sort of what based on what Stanley Tucci did. Obviously, we don't have Stanley Tucci's budget, but that was sort, <laughs> yeah. of, that was sort of the idea. And and we've segued into trying to get guests on because there's such a huge, amazing world of, of Italian food writers out there that it just it's it's kind of mind-blowing so that's a really we have a really good time with that that one as well and that's a nice one because we get to try different cooking techniques as part of when we record we each generally contribute a dish and we'll do pick pictures and show them off on social media and so it's just it's a really nice collaboration with two people who are you know passionate foodies like i am just in different ways I love that. I mean, do you feel like Italian food's kind of coming into our renaissance right now? Because um, we're having a lot of people showing accurate yeah. Italian food, whereas before we had the Olive Gardenization mm-hmm. of Italian food, which is we'll not be speaking about because it's horrifying. <laughs> but uh, thank God, <laughs> I do. I do definitely think we're seeing that. Um, I, I think you could argue we're seeing that with a majority of, of food from from different backgrounds and ethnicities. Yeah. You mentioned New Mexican food. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly, and then certainly there's an appreciation for the fact that it's specific to Italian food, you know, Italian food is not just pasta and sauce. Italian right. food is so many other things. And there are 22 separate regions within the, the country of Italy, and each one has its own unique identity. And the food can be as varied as, you know, seafood in, in these regions along the coast to the area of Tuscany, which, you know, they're, they they tend to use, they have a term called cucina povera, which is poor, literally poor people's food. And it's based on a lot of use of bread because bread was something everybody had. So bread has sort of been turned into this amazing ingredient that's used as a thickener for soups, that's used as a basis for meatballs. So it's a lot of things that I don't think people have ever really thought about. You think about maybe breadcrumbs, but not actual like the use of soaking a piece of bread in milk or water, squeezing it out, and then using that textured bread as a basis for a really wonderful recipe. Um, you know, and then I think a lot of people are aware of there's the you know the, the the dichotomy between you know olive oil versus butter, and butter has tended to be much more used in the north because of the proximity of 
of dairy cows in these in these mountainous regions along the border between Switzerland and France. Those have tended yeah. to, to be have a lot more um, cows and, and cattle and things of that nature. But it's not so strict anymore. And you know, with you know, and with the influx of 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 just different cultures immigrating to different countries, I think you're, you know, we're starting to definitely see there is a huge difference in regional cooking in from all countries. You know, even in a, even in like United States, you know, there's a difference between cooking in the in the South, you know, like the Southern states, like you know, Georgia, South Carolina, you know, your what you would think of as your traditional Southern states, and then the cooking in the place like where I live, New Mexico, and then the cooking in the place like the you know Pacific Northwest. So, yeah. you know, I think I think it's just having the appreciation and the acknowledgement that, yes, maybe we have a perception that food, certain foods are associated with certain countries, but we're realizing more and more that many different foods can be associated with a country from many in many different ways and from different regions within that country. And that's sort of what, what I think we're trying to do with sharing the flavor is just share the fact that Italy, you know, like most other countries is not just one dish. It's not just one culture. It's not even necessarily just one language. It's many different foods and cultures and languages and identities. Yeah, the lady from the pasta grannies on, um, and she was saying that one. I love that. I love that show so much. It's really good, um, mm -hmm. and it's just the the uh, people that are the guests are the really the star of the show because mm -hmm. they're incredible. But she was saying that one town will have no knowledge of the cooking of a town next to them. Mm -hmm. Which is unthinkable in America because, but mm -hmm. like it, it, you know, and I see this in Europe a lot where you'll have different accents in different towns that really are just, if it was California, mm -hmm. it would just be the town next over that because we commute so much, but they don't. Sure. So, exactly. and it's so different there where, you know, it's just different regional cooking and everybody mm -hmm. has different ways of doing things. Because mm -hmm. when I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid, you know, all Italian food was, was meat gravy on spaghetti, mm -hmm. right? That was it. Mm -hmm. Or lasagna. Mm hmm. Oh yeah, spaghetti and meatballs. That was it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I and I also think, and, and this is something that Giovanni, my other podcast partner, has has mentioned is oftentimes as well. A lot of it is is there's a strong interest in maintaining that unique identity and that unique sense of self in these in these different places in Italy. That's their way of of maintaining their their identity is is keeping these specific recipes. You know, keep keep putting them out there, of course, but. You know, I, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, you, food is such an integral part of culture and identity that I do think it's important, even as, as, as much as we become, you know, multicultural and sharing our culture and our food throughout the world, I also think it's very important for us to maintain our own culinary traditions as a, as a way to honor our, our culture and our, our, our identities. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So to talk about Fear Feast a little bit, um, mm -hmm. how did you meet? You said you had... Ali um, was on your podcast, and then that's how you guys mm -hmm. got to meet. When did so, the talk about um, having uh, Fear Feast come out? It was right, I would say it was about a year and a half ago. She was right at the end of her finishing her PhD, and she didn't have the time for it. But I, she said, you know, she, she, she loved the idea. And so I followed up with her, and we kind of just kind of hashed it out and talked about how we wanted to go about it, talked about different, you know, what would we would call the podcast, how we would how we would break it up. And she had the very brilliant idea of breaking it into seasons based on the different subgenres of horror. So we've talked about satanic food, you know, possession, satanic, demonic. Now we're in our season with um, haunted house food. We're going to do a segment on witches. We're going to do a segment on vampires. We're going to do a segment on ghosts, um, monsters, zombies 
general just you know paranormal we're probably going to do a season on on slashers which i think will be very entertaining and i um I, I like that idea. I, I hadn't thought so specifically about breaking it into different seasons. And my original approach was was to stick with the sort of the literature aspect of it. And she's the one that said, I would think it would be a great idea if we incorporated um, movies into it. And what's great about she and I is that we really complement one another on that. We're good podcast partners because she's much, she's much more of a movie aficionado. And she loves to read like I do, but she oftentimes will have much more background on the film as opposed to me who, you know, I read voraciously. So, you know, I, I, I have, you know, in, in oftentimes there's areas where, like, you know, I've read the book more, many more times than the film. So I'll have that insight and she's watched the film many more times. So she'll have the insight on that. And it's, it's been a great collaboration. I, I want to say, you know, for the people that are listening, I want to mention you, you will often do something that I, I love so much, which is you will compare and contrast where you can um, a movie and the book it's based on. Not, not, it's not always possible. I think like House of the Devil, for instance, had no book. Um, yeah. So, and so there are films that, where that can't be done. But with Rosemary's Baby, uh, The Omen, so many of these uh, t- movies that were based on uh, best-selling books, mm-hmm. The Exorcist, um, mm-hmm. you you contrast them and compare them, and I just alone. The uh, Rosemary's Baby episode, I believe, should have, and I'm not trying to gush, but I think it should have won an award. It was so well done. Thank you. It could have been a university uh, lecture. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just perfect because mm-hmm. you guys really went in depth on uh, Ira Levin's book. And you talked about it and you talked about you know the characters and how he wrote it. And mm-hmm. then you compared it to the wonderful film. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing. I really loved it so much. Um, Thank you. You guys really give a lot of love, I think. And you show a lot of love. There's no dry talking about this. It's very, very passionate. It's just something that we both love. Um, you know, we both, are, like I said, we're avid readers. We're goth aficionados. We love horror. We love food and cooking, both of us. And it's just, you know, and I think we both come at it from slightly different areas as well. Like she very much comes from from the academic background, the the literary analysis. You know, that's something that when I was in, in graduate school, I, I absolutely hated. I refuse to do any kind of literary analysis now. So that's probably why I would never go back and get a degree, uh, an advanced degree, but that's okay. But um, because to me, literary analysis takes the joy out of it. And yeah. so, but I, I love that she is so well-versed in, in it that she can, and she makes me think, it's like, she definitely makes me up my game because she makes me think about things in terms of literature and horror and food that I had never thought about before. We did an episode recently on the uh, the wonderful movie Crimson Peak by Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. and she talked about the concept of weaponizing food, which I had never really thought about. But then I started thinking, my God, yes, absolutely. And then you start thinking, wow, food weaponization is not just what they're doing in this book. You can look back through history and see how food has been weaponized by you know incoming cultures. I think very specifically of the Spaniards coming to the United, you know, to the Americas. And yeah. bringing bringing certain diseases to the indigenous the indigenous tribes, it's, you know, similar along along those lines. Or you think about something like something as basic as sugar, yeah. And how sugar has been, you know, harvested throughout the years. It's been harvested on the blood and sweat of slaves. That's a very to me that's as, as horrific 
a food reference is, is anything with a supernatural twist on it. So like I said, she's, she's been, she's been really great for me to up my game. And I think I've, you know, she said the same thing with me. She said, you know, I've made, I've helped her look at, you know, things in literature a lot more differently. And she's, I've given her an appreciation for Stephen King. Cause I, I think Stephen King is like the best writer in the entire world. He's certainly one of my top five favorites. And um, so, yeah, so I think, like I said, you know, she and I are, are very good collaborators and, and she's become a, a very dear friend as well. So I think, you know, all, best of both worlds. Now you, you mentioned in the first, you know, season you, you talked about um, the satanic films and then mm-hmm. you're now working on in this season, you're working on haunted, haunted houses. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, correct. And, um, any taste of what we're going to be seeing next season? Uh, you mentioned witches. Is that going to be one of them? Uh, we haven't decided which specific subgenre we're going to do next. Um, we're, we're tossing about a few ideas. Uh, could be witches, could be vampires, could Ooh. be ghosts, could be um, zombies, could be just monsters in general, could be general paranormal, could be could be who knows could be slashers i don't know we we have some interesting things coming up we have a, a t- season potential season coming up on uh dysfunctional families terrible wow. dads and bad moms i think we're gonna have a blast with that one yeah because that's gonna that's gonna have some huge tie-ins both with horror and with food because that's what families do they 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 they, tra- they traumatize one another and they have meals together i mean that's my family right there <laughs> That's yeah, that sounds accurate. Do you have any favorite episodes that you've done so far? I mean, you've had some really wonderful episodes and mm-hmm. I've enjoyed every one of them. Thank Do you, you have any favorite episodes that you've done so far? My personal favorite. Okay. Well, the one that came out today uh, is, is my favorite so far today. The episode that came out today was the shining based oh, on yeah. Stephen King's amazing book and the Stanley Kubrick masterpiece film. Love that book. That book is in my top five of all books of all time. Um, and I, you know, I've read it at, at least 20 times and I've seen the movie. I can't even tell you how many times. And so, in fact, I'll put it on as background music sometimes while I'm doing housework, if I'm cooking or, you know, that's how much I love both the film and the book. Um, and and we didn't even get into half of what we could have talked about specific to the film or the book. I just, today's episode is my favorite of all of the ones we've done. Rosemary's Baby is probably my second favorite for the reasons you mentioned. The third favorite one that I think we did is uh, based on, we covered a movie called The Dark and the Wicked. Dark and the Wicked, I don't scare very easily because I've read so much horror and I've seen so many horror films. That movie scared the hell out of me. I, I was genuinely terrified. Um, and Ali and I actually watched it together. We did a video share, like what you and I are doing now. And I actually screamed in a couple, <laughs> a couple of places, <laughs> which is a little embarrassing, but you know, that just goes to tell you. But I think what I think what we both enjoyed about it is we got very much into the family dynamic in that movie. And you start to really analyze how much food is an integral part of, of everyday life and family life and how it's used in certain situations, particularly when a family is grieving or going through trauma. And also in, in a more literary analysis sense, how what it says when the food itself is not present, but you're in these domestic situations like sitting around at a kitchen table, you know, taking this idea of something that's supposed to be the ultimate family togetherness activity, sharing a meal and turning it on its head and, and using it to show the the emptiness and the barrenness of, of this family, because that's what that movie is really ultimately about in the end is, is family isolation and family trauma 
and generational trauma in many ways. So that to me is a is, is a definite favorite episode, The Dark and the Wicked. It's a it's a well done. It's an incredibly good movie. It's not one I want to watch again for a really long time because it is so dark. But uh, it's yeah. so such a good movie. Brian Bertino is, a, is such an amazing director. We already talked about this a little bit, but I want to mm -hmm. kind of ask you a little bit more about it because you really um, are a fan of the written word um, and horror. Um, are there any other writers that you read right now that you're really enjoying their works that are, that are horror writers or gothic horror? Um, there's a writer named Silvia Garcia Moreno who wrote a book called Mexican Gothic. I love that mm -hmm. book. That, that book is great. And it has so many wonderful Gothic elements. It's got the mysterious spooky house. It's got the family secrets. It's got the potentially incestuous relationship between the brother and sister. Um, it's just, a, I really like her. And she's not particular, she's not just, just horror, but she's a wonderful writer. And I particularly like that book a lot. That was, that was definitely a favorite. Um, I really like Stephen uh, Graham Jones. And I yeah. like what he has done because I, this is something that I definitely see as a trend in horror literature is there's a lot more use of different ethnic backgrounds to showcase the trauma that and the horrors that people have gone through in this country specifically. Um, there's another wonderful writer, Tana Reeve Du. She's yes. an African-American. Oh my God, she's amazing. Uh, yeah. Victor, Victor Laval, he wrote a book called The Changeling. I like that because it was sort of based on fairy tales and I love fairy tale horror. That's another season Ali and I are going to do, by the way, fairy tale horror. Ooh, nice. I know, that right? can, that'd be oh, some good yeah. ones for that one. Yeah. But I, I like that. I like that these writers are using their own personal backgrounds and ethnicities to explore, not just the horrors that they've gone through, you know, as, as, as being people of a different, you know, a non-white background in this country. And I love that they're using it as using a supernatural horror or in, in Stephen Graham Jones's case, slasher horror, as a way to explore these really deep and important themes. Um, you know, I think for so many years, horror tended to be very just generic in the sense that it tended to be the it tended to be the done by, or at least it was promote the horror that came out was was mainly by you know white men. And in, and again, Stephen King, I love Stephen King. And I, I think he's an example of somebody who you've seen his style evolve and grow over the years. You know, he's much more, he writes, you know, characters that I think are a lot more well-rounded. And I like that he, you know, he gives more airtime, if you will, to characters from different backgrounds. You know, you, you, that wasn't really the case with Stephen King. You know, the, one of the characters I can think of is the character of Dick Halloran in the Shining, you know, one of the first examples that I can remember of a of a, of a, a man of color, a person of color, being one of the central characters in in a in a book of horror by a by a white man. So I like that. I like to see that. I like that evolution. But I really like that the, that we're seeing more of that. I, I love that you know because I think it's re much more reflective of the culture and the society that we live in. You know, everybody has gone through their trauma and everybody's gone through their horror. And some people have gone through a lot more of it than others have, you know, because of the fact that they are of a different ethnic background. So I love, I love seeing that. And I think it, I think it's a valid, I think it's a very valid way to showcase horror. I, I want, I hope we see more of it. So, but definitely Victor Laval and Stephen Graham Jones are, they're, they're phenomenal. Uh, the, the, the book, The Changeling was so terrifying to me. I don't even have children in that book terrified me, so. 
Now, you mentioned Stephen King. Have you read his new book, Holly? Because it, it would definitely tie into Fear Feasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I has not come yet. Um, I, I try to support local bookstores, and my local bookstore, it had their shipment of it had gotten delayed. So I'm yeah. going to go probably buy it um, probably in the next couple of days. Yeah, so I've been waiting too. I was I always tell myself I'm going to wait and see if somebody gets it for me for Christmas and I thought no, I can't wait. <laughs> well, food definitely plays a role in it. Uh if you've heard okay. anything about it, uh it's going to be a big tie-in, so. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. And I love her, I love the character of Holly Gibney. She's just so amazing. I, you know, too. I love that I love that he has written such a strong female character. You know, that's sort of been one of the criticisms leveled at him is that he doesn't write people of different ethnic backgrounds very sensitively and he doesn't write strong female characters i would take great issue with the issue of of him not writing strong women because i think his women most of the time are very strong the character of wendy torrance is a very strong character in the book i hated what was done to her character in the movie but we won't get into that i mean even annie wilkes you know in misery annie wilkes was a fascinating female character um holly gibney is amazing the character beverly in in the book it She's yeah. amazing. She's a, she's a badass. So you're going to like this one then it's the, I think cause Holly continues to progress and she grows strengths. And this is a big one for her. I think, um, okay. she's a big as character is in it as she was in the outsider. In fact, oh, she's the central character. So it's, it's okay. even better. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. She's a great character. I love her. Now I know you, you don't watch as many horror films as you do read books, but uh, do you have like a top 10 horror films? Oh, I have a top 12. Okay, top 12. <laughs> so my first one is The Exorcist, of course. And I think The Exorcist is one of those movies that it's not even just horror anymore. It's just, it's it's part of the canon of, of great American films. Yeah. Uh, Get Out by Jordan Peele. That, that, ah. that Oh, God. That yeah, movie. Yeah, so good. Well, I think one of the amazing. best horror films ever made. Yes, I agree. And for so many reasons, tying in with what I was talking about previously with Victor Laval and Stephen Graham Jones, you know, showing horror from the viewpoint of a person who has been traumatized generationally by institutional racism. And mm-hmm. and to me, the best part of that movie, though, is the end. And I saw this movie. It was one of the few I've seen in the theater recently, not recently, but, you know, when it came out. And we literally cheered. Like we all stood up and were applauding at the end when his friend gets out of the car, his TSA friend, because, you know, you watching that movie against the backdrop of what's happened over the past several years of watching, you know, young black men get killed by, you know, white authority figures. I think everybody in that I was terrified. I was like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to know. And then his friend shows up to save the day. I was like, oh, like so uplifted. I love that movie. Jordan Peele. He's such a great director. I love him. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. specifically the version directed by Coppola. I love that. Yeah. That's so like beautiful and lush and the colors and everything. And, you know, there's that classic line. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. I mean, come on now. That's yeah, that's a great movie. Uh, there's a movie that came out in the eighties directed by Ken Russell called Gothic. Yep. And it yep. supposedly tells the story of, of the summer when Lord Byron and Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley and Dr. John Polidori and Mary Shelley's sister or stepsister rather went to stay in this villa in um, on Lake Geneva. And of course they were doing all sorts of crazy opiums and drinking and who knows how many orgies they had or whatever, but that's where Mary Shelley got the inspiration to write Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus and where Dr. John Polidori got the inspiration to write the vampire and this 
this movie is just crazy. It's like over the top, has some trippy, great food references in it as well. But that that's one of my absolute favorites. I remember seeing that in the 80s. There are a lot of kind of those weird, hyper real kind of strange films coming out. And I just fell in love with it. And I, you know, I've always had a thing for Gabriel Byrne. I still do to this day. And um, Julian Sands, May He Rest in Peace. An excellent, excellent movie. Crazy. Um, of course, there's The Shining, which you've already talked about. The movie is, the movie's amazing. Uh, I think you could make an argument that the movie is a standalone entity from the book. Uh, to me, they're yeah. so different from one another. You're very much. And we get, Allie and I get very much into that in this episode, but the, it, it doesn't take away from the movie at all. In fact, I think, I think it should be a standalone because Kubrick was such a, a brilliant director, a misogynist, but a brilliant director. Friday the 13th, the first one, I, it has a very special place in my heart. I saw it when I was young and uh, I, I was a preteen, I think, when I saw it. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, when you're a preteen, you know, you have all those crazy hormones running around and Kevin, you know, Kevin Bacon was in it and he was hot. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and I just have very fond memories of watching it on a uh, on my friend's uh, cable because you know she was she was rich and so she had cable back then we didn't have cable we had you know three channels and that was it so we'd always go to her house to watch mtv and you know she had you know she had all that so that was we, we always remember friday the 13th very fondly so yeah um salem's lot which i think we already talked about the, yeah, scene, the, original. With the, kid, the scene with the kid floating and you can't beat that i mean it's the scariest to this day you know but then the scene in the book is is just as scary in a different way. And I loved in the book how the character of Mark Petrie, he's able to fight it off by, like, he takes his little monster, his little yep. monster figurines and he holds up the cross, you know? Like, wow, you know, I'm gonna try that next time a vampire shows up at my house. Love that movie, so good. Uh, American Psycho, as we talked about the movie and the book, not that it's necessarily horror, although I think it is, but you know, because it's satire, um, yeah. it's just, yeah. It, it's a great it's a great movie it really really is uh the second aliens not the first one the second aliens right i love that movie it has some great lines of dialogue it was my dad's favorite he had a huge crush on on ripley and he had a, he he had it on vhs this tells you how long ago it was that i first saw this movie and so my sister my dad and i would sit down and watch it and to this day my sister and i like we can literally quote that movie line by line we're all gonna die man we're all gonna die <laughs> <laughs> Bill Paxton, rest in peace. Rest in peace. I know, right? That was great. Love that movie so much. Um, Suspiria by Dario ah, Argento. Oh, anything yeah. in the giallo genre is is a favorite. The colors, the weird, bizarre murders. But Suspiria is probably my favorite, and and a fantastic witch witchcraft movie as well. But did you see the I, remake? I did. I still like the original better, but yeah. the remake was really good, and I liked uh, Dakota Johnson in it was better she was she was really good in that it was way better than 50 shades of gray horrible horrible movie the soundtrack uh, for the sequel is very good oh okay i'll have to check it out it's by yeah, tom but, york from radiohead he did it it's really good oh okay you know i think i think ali actually mentioned ali mentioned that to me when we were talking about doing uh, a, a season of our podcast on on the giallo uh, genre okay thank you for that that's good to know uh angel heart another 80s movie with uh Robert De Niro and I just went blank. Mickey Rourke. Uh, yeah, and I'm Lisa, also, Bonet. Uh, Lisa Bonet. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. wonderful film. Oh, I'm yeah. so glad you talked about that one because I love the the book. Mm -hmm. I own the book, and I, I just I love it mm -hmm. so much. It's such yeah. a good book. Falling Angel. It's a wonderful book. I love that book too. And did you know there was a sequel? I never read it. I and I now I'm, I'm looking to find it and get a copy because I really mm -hmm. want to read the sequel now. I'm surprised there's a sequel because. 
it, the ending of the first didn't really lend itself to one. So I'm no. interested to see what happens. Well, the, in the ending sequel. of the first movie didn't. You know, that's yeah. the great thing about the the difference between the book and the movie. In the in the book, it ends with him getting arrested. Yeah. And that's it. And that and that's it. And so, not to spoil it for you, but obviously, since there's a sequel, you know, he's he's still around. So yeah. it basically starts with him escaping from the police, and it goes on from there. And I'm not. I, I won't tell you anymore. But yes, if you can, um, it's called. Um, um, in um, Angels Inferno. Okay. And I'll you check can that probably out. find it. I I mean on Amazon. I found it used yeah. on Amazon. So yeah. And then uh, another like back to the '90s movie is uh, Flatliners. That's a great movie. That's a good one too. Yeah, it was such a great cast in that one too. Well, another Anything Kevin Bacon else? movie. Kevin Bacon's Kevin Bacon does some. He's in, been in some favorite horror films. Stir of Echoes is another one that comes to mind. Obviously, yeah. Friday the Thirteenth, but. Yeah. So no, I just love Flatliners and it, it was, it, it touched me in a lot of ways because you know, there, there's a storyline in there where Julie Roberts' character has lost her father. And, you know, I lost my father pretty young and it was not the same circumstances, of course, but it, it was, I saw it only just a couple of years after my dad passed. So it always kind of stayed with me and, and, you know, and I just love the idea of, you know, going to the other side and, and, making amends for things that you did and coming back and, and being able to get your life on the right track. I, I definitely think there's a, a strong sense of a morality tale in that movie. And I think that's part of why I like it. Also, it's very scary. That little kid in the red jacket chasing after Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland. Very yeah. good. Mm -hmm. So there's my, there's my list of 12. So one last question, if you're going to have mm -hmm. a dinner party and invite uh, 10 characters, from different horror films to it um and who would you invite and what would you have <laughs> i love that question so much so i'm gonna i'm gonna do like a full like you know four or five course meal here so i think you know we're gonna start with uh probably gonna start with father we're good. the people i would invite would be father merit father um father the two priests from the exorcist father karis and father marin uh jack and danny torrance nice <laughs> Count Vlad Dracula and Van Helsing. Nice. Lord Byron from Gothic. Uh, speaking of Angel's Heart, Harry Angel and Louis Cipher. Nice. And then Franken Frankenstein's Monster. So I think we're going to start with, in honor of uh, The Exorcist, we'll start with some split pea soup. And, <laughs> since, I, <laughs> and since I think, I, I don't know why, but I have it in my head that Lancaster Marin is of Irish descent. I could be wrong. But we could also do some Irish blue cheese crackers that look like communion wafers, you know. Nice. Priests. <laughs> I think that's I think that's pretty inspired um, as like a nice little appetizer for Harry Angel and Lewis Cipher. We could have some hard boiled eggs minced over some steamed asparagus since eggs are nice. a big thing in the movie. Uh, we could start with a nice bowl of tagliatelle and a tomato cream sauce for Lord Byron since there was that scene with the big bowl of pasta in the movie Gothic, which love that, love that. For Frankenstein's monster, I think in his honor, because he is a vegetarian, I think I would do a nice vegetable gratin casserole. Nice. And then in honor of Count Vlad and Van Helsing, we'll just do a nice, rare, very bloody steak with lots of spices from Eastern Europe, since both of them are sort of from that area. And then for dessert, in honor of Danny and Jack, I thought we could do a nice big bowl of vanilla ice cream with a Kentucky bourbon reduced syrup on top. Nice. Mm -hmm. I love that. That is wonderful. Thank you. Vanessa, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've so enjoyed getting thank to you, talk to Dean. you. This is a great pleasure. I love your podcast as well. You've had some amazing guests. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I enjoy really doing love your it. Podcast. Thank you. You're very, you're very generous. Thank you. Um, 
And I want to urge people to listen to the podcast Fear Feasts. We're going to have a link in the bio and uh, you can access it there. You really have to go back and binge listen to the whole thing because it's just, it's selectable. Vanessa, I'll let you go. Thanks for being being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. That was my conversation with the wonderful Vanessa Baca. You can listen to her podcasts, Cooking the Books in Fear Feast, by going to links in the bio. You can also go to her blog. We have links in the bio for that as well. I know that you'll enjoy it. Coming up tomorrow is my conversation with TikTok star Jeremy Sheck to talk about his new book, Sheck Eats, Cooking Smarter, Friendly Recipes with a Side of Science, and that'll be tomorrow. Until then, I hope you're going to have a wonderful Halloween, a wonderful week, and until next time, I'll see you at the library.